0: okay okay we're recording hey everyone welcome back to another episode of the fintech at iu podcast today we're sitting down with matt west who is the current ceo of xenios matt would you like to introduce yourself
1: yeah thanks eric and thanks james for having me on i'm really excited to be here i think it's awesome what what you do and uh pretty impressive the uh number of of podcasts you put out per per week so great great job by both of (laughs) you Um, so, Matt West, I'm the CEO of Xenios, which is a risk and compliance consulting services and technology company. I started out about two months ago. was previously the, the chief strategy officer at MVB Bank, which is uh, one of the, the more prominent fintech banks, has about 90 partnerships that are publicly traded and listed on, on NASDAQ. I had started, um, along with the rest of the team, started their fintech business about six years ago and then also co-founded a company called victor which is a fintech infrastructure company i was there
2: i think that one of the most pressing issues right now in the space you operate in is the sheer amount of crackdown that's happening on fintech bank relationships and i saw seven billion dollars worth of fines were assessed last year how are you talking to some of your clients and, and trying to avoid some of those issues with with smaller partner banks and the fintech being even bigger than the actual bank that they're partnering with? So there's, you know, this weird dichotomy where the bank is supposed to be doing all the compliance, but then the fintech is actually bigger than the bank. So they call the shots. Right.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It's a it's a really interesting environment and and one that's the the primary reason for for why I started this business and that there are a number of smaller community and, and regional banks that are, are continuing to look at how they remain competitive or, or grow their business and then you've got this 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 broader macro trend that's seven ten years in the making of fintech companies continue to take share from banks to customer share and uh the however at least in the, in the u.s the the regulatory environment Requires these fintech companies to partner with a bank to either get access to payment rails, to hold FDIC insured funds, and it's certainly a, a much more efficient market to lend as a bank than it is to go state by state to get uh, lending licenses. So you have this thing that's pushing banks to get into being a, a partner bank. Then on the other side, you have this the the consequences of of not doing it well, which which you just summarized, and. The I'd say over the last couple of years, what's you know, for some you can think of it as there there are more penalties or enforcement actions that are are becoming public. Uh, the the positive spin to that is the expectations of the, the U.S. banking regulators is is becoming clearer. So where before I think the you know there, there was some amount of catch up uh, that that was being done. Now the the regulators are are in a better position, more knowledgeable. Um, more uh, clear about what they expect, and, and that's the positive for a bank. It's uh, yeah. in, in my mind. While wow, the the first time uh, the the bank may come across the the raised standards or raised expectations, that that may be painful. Uh, but I think in in the long term, it's it's a real positive for the industry, especially for new banks that are getting in. Uh, reading enforcement actions is, is a great way to learn what the expectations are, and, and then it's easier to, to meet those expectations. So uh, it's, yeah. it's certainly it, it's not uh, it's not for the timid or, or uh, to, to get into it. There has to be a lot of commitment from a leadership team as, as well as the board, because boards uh, ultimately have responsibility the way most of the, the regulations are structured. So it's important that the banks understand there, there is risk getting into this environment. Uh, the, the risks are, are are broad some of them are, are perceived but many of them are, are actual risks and it's just understanding those um, my background which we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about in the the context of um for, for students my backgrounds engineering it's not finance not financial services i was a person who worked in a manufacturing place with steel toe boots and you know uh, very very far from the financial services world but uh, eventually made my way here and uh, i think it's just, just continuing to learn and breaking down those regulations into their smallest component um, and then building back up to solutions whether it be a policy or procedure or technology or uh, whatever yeah. it may be to, to meet those requirements
2: i think that one thing that i'm really scared about even on the end consumer side is this new 600 dollars uh, payment reporting that's required by, by the irs I think that they punted it to tax year 2024, but there is, uh, and Eric, uh, I've talked about this in one of our club meetings, that uh, if you transact more than $600 on Venmo, for example, or Cash App, you're going to have to actually file that as income on your tax return. Yeah, this is one I'm I trying to remember.
1: It, it seems like it's been a few months since I, I saw the last of this. Uh the, the peer-to-peer payments generally are what well, were originally designed to be peer-to-peer payments, and as the networks have grown, have, have started to become uh, business payments. Uh, it, it is a it's, it's a challenging thing for regulators to, to keep up with. So I I think there's still more room before that gets implemented. Not not all regulations are perfect the first time. That, that's yeah. that's for sure.
2: And on the Venmo side all you really do is you you send someone money you put in they require you to put something in as the description it's re- like absolutely required you can't just skip on it most people just put like an emoji or just one word so how do you discern the business payments from what is just, hey, we went out for dinner and I'm reimbursing you for that, right? Where I'm not actually getting income from this. It's actually, I lost money because I went down to dinner, right? (laughs) And it seems like such a challenging thing, especially from Venmo's perspective, because it's gonna reduce the amount of people that use their app. But at the same time, it's also gonna scare away people who are operating like a sole proprietorship where they're making maybe $100, $200 a day where it's not anything super egregious, but Venmo was their best option. So I think it would cut into Venmo's market share at least some amount.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to step back and think, what's what's the intent of the regulation? Who's the regulator? So in this case, we're we're talking about the IRS. The intent is they're they're likely trying to capture taxes due when they're due. Uh, there, there are often unintended consequences. I'd say, if not often, not maybe always unintended consequences of, of regulation. I think it is realistic to think that there are, if there are people that are using any payment method, doesn't have to be, Vin, I won't pick on, on Venmo. There are others as well. If, if they're using those payment methods as a way to to avoid payment, yeah, similar to, to why some people would use cash, uh, at least historically, why, why people would use cash. Um, but it, uh, I would say it will have some intended consequence by the IRS that people would, would stop using, uh, different payment methods to, to avoid tax or, uh, to avoid records of, of payment, which would in turn help them reduce or avoid some taxes. Uh, but there will be some unintended consequences with with some Mm -hmm. of the payment methods as well that they may it lose out and it's certainly unfortunate I'd, I'd also say it's 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 common that there's some of those unintended consequences
2: eric what do you think as an end consumer of, of venmo's product like you've probably venmoed people it, is it going to deter you from venmoing people if you have to actually pay tax on the 600 plus dollars that you that people send you i mean most likely i'd probably go to zelle i think zelle is going to have the same regulation applied to it is it really yeah, I mean it's still peer-to-peer payments. You're still one person sending money to to someone else. Zelle can be used for the same purposes as Venmo. So what what are your plans
0: if you if you're
2: going to have to pay tax on
0: that money? I'm honestly I don't know. I'd probably go to another platform, one that doesn't have that. Yeah, that there's is like- one Sorry. I, now now i am got
1: to dig into this one more. I, I hadn't spent as much time being uh, sort of more more on the IRS regulatory side than, than the banking side. But I think just um, now you've got me thinking out loud and uh, and recording at the same time. So it's a little dangerous. So it's there's some. I would say that there's also I think typically you have an income limit to taxes. So maybe less likely that college students get hit with it. Um, so hopefully there's there's some
2: benefit there. Yeah, for sure. I I mean in in what 2023 has been and and what I what I mean by that is that 2023 has just been a year where everyone thought there was going to be a recession, you know, founders were going to stop creating new products, but instead we have, you know, IPOs coming down the pipeline. What do you what do you see as your sort of macro outlook in in this space? Are number one are regulations going to tighten even further? Uh, And number two, do you see more founders coming out of the woods and and starting even more things in this kind of an environment?
1: Yeah, I'll hit hit those two and then then add a third. Uh, I think it's just macro trends, uh, market downturns always produce, or at least uh, the last few cycles, market downturns produce quite a few new entrepreneurs. So quite, quite resilient. Uh, talented, resilient people tend to, to to create opportunities, create companies in, in tougher times. So, in a tougher market, I see that as as a favorable thing uh, for for new creation. The the VC world valuations had gotten out of hand, uh, and and so now they're. I think there's one argument to make that they're they're back to reality, at least in in the fintech space when you come to when it comes to multiples. And um I, I saw a great LinkedIn post yesterday from from Itai, who's the the CEO of our unit and it said fintech there, there's some numbers out there that talk about fintech funding being so much lower than it was before but partially it's it's based on the definition of fintech or the categorization of, of fintech so yeah you know, if, if you're looking for another chime or another SoFi, and that's what you're you're looking to be funded. That that's probably not a realistic expectation. They're more and more embedded finance companies. So you'll see whether it's Shopify with what they're doing or Intuit with what they're doing. So the the type of investment that's being made, it's it's more. There, there's some shift towards embedded finance companies or B two B payments. So there are different types of categories, and I'm not sure that the VC funding metrics have, have caught up with it. So my my summary is I think there there will continue to be more more startups. They may not look the same as as they did five years ago, but uh, I have no doubt that they'll continue to be um, there's there's still so much inefficiency in the system. The inefficiency is a, is an opportunity to to solve and create a company to 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 capture value from from solving that inefficiency. So feel very confident that side. The other side is there is um the regulatory environment does uh, is correlated to um, politics, and so in the current environment, I, I think that it, it does continue to be um, a tougher regulatory environment for fintech companies and, and for banks that support fintech companies. Uh, a little. So that's that's a macro view. It will be interesting the the election coming up. I don't want to get into to politics on, <laughs> on this because. Uh, but i say they impact regulation and then the i think that's the macro piece there is some i have a personal view that the u.s when it comes to the regulatory framework it is way behind on on crypto and at some point that that pendulum catches back up i think the broader uh, the the broader sort of banking regulatory environment um that, that swing tends to stay within a, a range. It doesn't necessarily get out of bounds. But the, the crypto one is, is one that, especially as it relates to banks who support crypto companies, that one seems you know, very different than than other jurisdictions.
0: So do you personally think there's going to be a recession?
1: Uh, now I'm an economist too. Um, <laughs> I would say... I, if if the fed is able to continue managing a, a soft landing it, it'll history will, will look very favorable um it, it's the easy answer is yes there'll be a recession I just don't know when um, whether there'll be one in, in 2024 um, I, I i wouldn't predict um if, if so it it seems they've done a it seems the fed's done a pretty nice job of of making it soft even if it's a recession it doesn't appear as, as though it would be severe there's there so many people last year that said, in 2023 at the beginning of the year, we just did a look back. I think it was 75% of people predicted a recession during 2023, and so 75% of people were were wrong, or I at mean, least uh, missed on timing.
0: That? Yeah, it's funny you say that because every single time there has been a recession through the dot-com bubble, through the Great Recession and through COVID, right before that, what preceded was the fact that analysts were saying there is going to be a soft landing. So I think that maybe history repeats itself this time around. But, you know, I I think, James, what do you think? I know you you like to talk about the rebound.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I love to talk about the twos tens, which has had a perfect record uh, in in predicting recessions, and now we're starting to see a rapid unversion of that. The twos tens, uh, the three the three month ten year bond uh, just uninverted, um, so that it, it could signal that um, the recession is 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 nigh, uh, and that um, the twos tens usually uninverts
0: right before the the NBER actually formally declares that there's a recession.
2: Yeah so i
1: i tend to look at it as uh not good at predicting them but thinking of what what action what, what would a recession mean to the the fintech ecosystem uh, yeah. typically recessions are are bad for consumer credit programs it, and it depends on what what's driving the recession how how steep it is so yeah. back to your, your earlier question i don't think that it i don't think it affects the macro trend as to you know, will there be more fintechs will more banks continue to support fintechs those i think continue to, to play out fairly strong They're um yeah but consumer cre- in a recession consumer credit programs may be less likely uh to, to be coming in and that that's that's one of the key pieces and then banks may tighten up a little bit so you, you'll be less spending but at the same time that 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 could drive the dynamics uh for for banks the other thing is if there's a recession then they they start to drop rates again. That changes the economics on on some of the banking service where, where a fintech company or a a neobank is is participating in the in the rate that uh, is being paid on on deposits. So it starts to change some economics. But I, I think the yeah. it had to be very severe and uh, different in in the structure for it to to really affect the the macro trend here with with banks fintech partnerships.
2: Yeah, and I was going to bring that up. The, the main thing that that actually would be a major tailwind for a lot of, of Bass relationships is the the cost of funds would would decrease substantially in the in the case of a recession. And I know that a lot of fintechs try to compete by offering very competitive rates on deposits. So by having some of that pressure alleviated, um I think that some of these fintechs would be able to get a lot more spread, uh, especially SVB, which was very well known for um uh, providing very high rates on business deposits which was relatively unheard of uh, by any bank and that was a very big um move that was the reason why so many founders banked with with SVB
1: yeah c- consumer high yield
2: savings programs would
1: would be tougher to fund uh, as as rates would drop right now it's it's great marketing you can think of offering a, a great yield as is, is just it's a customer acquisition uh cost so if if and, and that's propped up by by rates so if, if rates drop then on the consumer programs that that gets tougher um, but it's that's not too different than so sort of traditional banking economics and, and what you expect with with pricing as rates go down i think it would help on uh there there might be so it's funding costs go down some of the the lending programs you i totally agree with you that 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 changes in a favorable way, their cost of funds and, and starts to make some of those more viable again.
2: Just to pivot really quickly. Sure. SoFi decision to to move from Bancorp to their own bank charter two years ago now. Right decision or wrong decision, looking back on it now? Um, <laughs> I'd say two
1: years probably isn't enough time. I'd say currently it's it's going likely about as they expect. Uh, I'd say it's fairly neutral. Uh, it, it it hasn't blown up in their face. I think it will over the long run. I, I think it still gives them optionality. They they can always go back to add other partner banks. So it, it, at this point, if I were in their shoes, I'd say it's, it's gone okay. More more positive than negative.
2: I almost see SoFi as a real bank now. I don't think of them as a. I mean, I still kind of do, but their name is everywhere. Um, SoFi Stadium, obviously. I think of them more as I mean, obviously, a student lender that they dominate that market, but mm-hmm. I'm starting to really just think of them as one of the big players. Now, the the Amazon of, of FinTech is what I've called them before because of Galileo um, mm-hmm. and, and how they they provide the plumbing for other FinTechs as well. Yeah, I, they're an interesting case
1: study that I think it, we're, we're still somewhere there, maybe in the middle of that case study the Certainly, I mean, they, they own a bank, so they you know, either they own a bank or they are a bank. Um, the way they're valued has has drifted less from fintech towards the bank, which is not a favorable thing. Uh, I do think they have a lot of value that the Galileo piece and the infrastructure what they could provide. That there's still a number of things they they could do. Um, thus far, the, the Galileo piece they probably haven't monetized that a tremendous amount. Uh, there's still very well in Galileo is working with, with other banks and so that, that's a that's a positive thing that I think there there are many banks that were worried how that relationship would, would work with a would certify send more and more programs to to their own bank, which thus far it's 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 played out that, that Galileo's been able to continue to support and grow that business and continue to be a good partner to just to, to their partner banks. Yeah I
0: yeah. think one one yeah, yeah. go ahead Eric. Yeah, I think that's SoFi's biggest advantage is it's it's probably because of their productivity loophole. I, I don't know if you know their business model like like that, but um what they do is that they, they get you to sign up for one of their products and then they'll offer another discount and then they'll like hook you in and then that's why their products and their members keep increasing because of the loyalty those people have towards those products. So that way, you know, they don't have another bank because they have thirty products tailored towards one specific person. So I, I always thought that was really interesting. But the thing is, I think is so far, like I was doing a case study on this over winter break. And the thing is, is that it's it dipped. I was going to buy it on December 31st when it was trading at like 1030 or so. And then the next day it dipped to eight dollars. And now it's trading at like 763 because uh, the price target went from 750 to 650. So, you know, I I think it might be overvalued now. But James, I'd like to know your thoughts, because I know you have like 6,400 shares in so far. <laughs>
2: Wow, you're gonna you're gonna expose my positions like that on the podcast. That's a little bit. Uh, I <laughs> wow, can't believe you just said that. Okay, but but yeah, um, I'm I'm a big believer in SoFi. Like I said, Amazon at fintech, um, the Galileo partnership uh, or the Galileo purchase rather allows them to. Um, not only be a big player in the fintech space on the consumer side, but also the the B2B side. Um, so they, they provide the plumbing for other banks to do what they do. Um, and by that, other banks and other fintechs have to run through SoFi if they so choose to. And uh, and Matt could probably co- uh, corroborate that just a little bit as well.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest advantage of that was the fact that I, th- I think their biggest catalyst there is their BNPL expansion. So that way I I, I think – I think I've heard that they partnered with MasterCard to expand into Latin markets. So seeing how fintech and BNPL is booming over there, I think that, you know, that's what's going to drive their growth. Because even the regulations there, they are so much more laxed compared to the U.S. So your position is that you think SoFi is going to enter
2: BNPL? Well, SoFi already is in BNPL with Galileo. Galileo doesn't really do BNPL. It's more of like the plumbing for um the way the way I'd explain Galileo is it, it's an API that allows a bank to hook into a fintech seamlessly because it's just it's a standard language for a bank to speak to a fintech. But I think it's an interesting thing that you bring up saying that uh, SoFi could enter the BNPL space. It's pretty saturated, I would think. I, I bet Matt has an opinion on on how saturated that market is. Um, but but there's a lot of BNPL is like the Donald Trump of of fintech, I think. You either love it or you hate
0: it. The only reason why I think that SoFi is going to enter BNPL is because when you're moving away from the traditional for payment approach that all these firms like Affirm, Klarna use, you know, what Galileo, I think, offers is the fact that, you know, they're searching up individual credit histories to tailor payment plans. So, I mean, that's why so many people are saying that, you know, SoFi is going to enter the BNPL space. They are going to become a big player and you know, seeing that they had they had positive profits for the first time ever in their company histories since 2000s in like all of their ten year company history, I think that is you know where they're heading. But Matt, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I have
1: plenty of own. Are you thinking or saying that you think SoFi will enter BNPL directly, meaning they're they're offering BNPL, or do you think that they're going to Or do you see Galileo as an enabler, just the the tech infrastructure layer to enable BNPL? So make sure I understand what what, what your thought is here.
0: I think they definitely are a layer, but I would say that uh, BNPL for them is an additive. I think it's a secondary segment that they're going to focus on maybe in the future. But right now, I think that after the student loan debt moratorium ended and you know, SoFi they they dominated 80 percent of the market share in that industry pre-COVID before the debt moratorium started. I think that that is one of their main additives. And furthermore, the fact that, you know, their financial services segment, as well as their technology segment that had positive contribution profit for the, the the first time it had, it had the revenue uh, generators for that was more than lending. And that was the first time in all of the company's history. So I think they're going to focus more on that. But I would say that because their technology side is generating so much revenue, they have the opportunity to go into BNPL because of Galileo. And, you know, they're making more acquisitions like that, you know, uh, from as we've seen. Yeah, oh, oh, I had a
1: few. I think so I haven't uh, thought too much about it on my own before, but just following your 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 logic here, in many fintech companies, including SoFi, one of the reasons w- where they crush banks is, is they're far better at customer acquisition and then uh, lifetime customer value. So meaning they're they're much better at cross-selling and upselling. And In your case, you, you're focused more on how they cross-sell their products uh, and then servicing those at scale. And to me, BNPL, if they were to offer it direct is just another product that they're offering that they can then then cross sell so i think that that logic i you could talk me into that uh that side of the story pretty well
0: and then yeah.
1: on the the galileo's infrastructure piece it, it's they most people think of galileo as when it comes to card programs but it, it's it's certainly not a it's not a leap of faith to say that they could could also support more types of, of bnpl products too
2: I'm I'm a vehement uh, I'm gonna vehemently disagree that that SoFi will offer BNPL. Uh, just way too saturated, way too saturated. Um, it's hated for a lot of very valid reasons. Um, you know, offering credit to people that should not have it. No credit checks. Um, these long term loans that uh, people just freaking forget about on top of their credit card payments. Uh, and and it, it, as a consumer. BNPL does not offer me anything that I can't get with a credit card. It actually offers me a lot less because if I go pay with an Amex Gold, right, I'm going to get five membership reward points per dollar that I spend. When I go buy something with BNPL, what do I get? Nothing. I get, a, you know, four payments that I have to make
0: that I have to worry about, right? It's added baggage for the consumer. To one, Eric, I feel like you should, should return here. Uh, I mean <laughs> – I would say maybe that that is true, but I do think that BNPL is going to be a very sustainable market. If you look at a firm, you know, even though they they dipped dramatically over the past couple of years, they are they are coming back with a roar. And I think that in 2024, I don't know what they're trading at now. I think they're like trading at what 50, 60, something like that. James, do you know what a firm is trading at currently? I, I well, know, fine. That, yeah, I know that they're uh projected to go up to. Oh, they're trading at 40 right now. My bad. They're projected to go up to around 55, 60 by the end of 2024. So I think that, but, yeah.
2: Eric, here's the thing. You know, BNPL is not even a profitable business model. I mean, a firm has not made money in its existence. They have not. They've, you know, been leeching off this VC money. And it's, it's, it's a terrible thing to say. But once all this dry powder from these VCs dries up entirely – uh, a firm could very well become a zombie company, especially when you're going into a recession and defaults start to rise on those BNPL loans that you gave to people whose credit you didn't even freaking check.
0: So you really think your firm's not going to succeed? And, you know, that's it's going to – all the analysts are expecting that it will? Uh, all I'm saying is that credit cards offer the same thing and a better thing. Matt, what do you think?
1: i don't think the two of you are going to agree on this today but <laughs> the uh I, i'll i'll probably leave it there there james you hit it earlier that there are the, the two sides when it comes to buy now pay later i think you two are a, a good example of, of what exists in the industry today there, there are some pretty strong opinions on on both sides with uh whether or not buy now pay letter survives or not I I do not have one of those strong opinions either way. I see it as credit products come and go. Uh, part of it is is around timing. Um, and and I think the rate environment will certainly play a factor in, in which of the two you end up being right here over the next couple of years.
2: And, you know, I, I'd also say inflation plays a factor as well because the way BNPL you know earns their top line is not through the interest they earn on these loans. Some of these loans do charge interest, but the main bulk of this money they earn comes from taking a haircut off of what the retailer actually makes. So they negotiate these partnerships with these re- these big retailers and saying, "Hey, you know, we'll make your demand more elastic or more inelastic because we'll we'll, you know, encourage consumers to buy when they may not necessarily have the funds to do so." Well, they, they're going to take a little bit of a haircut off that in exchange for increased sales. So if some of these uh, some of these retailers start struggling a little bit in a recession as well, they're going to want to renegotiate some of those partnerships and have even less of a haircut
0: on some of these BNPL programs. Eric, you had anything there? I, I I was
1: going to add to it the the point. I mean, I still see in, in my investing and advising, I I'm still seeing companies that are, are looking to get into BNPL, but it is, they're very specific. It's not about the the rate piece, they're, whether it's packaging up experiences and, and BNPL for experience. I, I don't know, but it, it, it is with exact thought processes. They're using it to help drive demand. It's, it's not necessarily,
2: they're, they're not making money off of the interest. Yeah. And I can see it working a lot better with bigger ticket items, you know, Rolex, for example, if you want to buy a Rolex, I think that the unit economics make a lot more sense there because, you know, they take a maybe a 5% haircut. If you're buying, you know, a Rolex, they're going to get 250 bucks. You know, that makes a lot more sense. That helps balance out the risk of of someone buying a Rolex on BNPL. Uh, I'd say definitely more due diligence on the consumer side is warranted with some of these companies, and I think they're starting to realize that, right? Because. Uh, credit quality has deteriorated among consumers as well recently. Uh, defaults among uh, the small small lenders, uh, credit card portfolios are rising substantially. I've seen multiple LinkedIn posts about that. Uh, so some worrying trends for the BNPL
0: industry, I'd say. Yeah, the only reason why I think that, you know, SoFi should branch into BNPL in the first place is because it's not it's not going to be a main revenue generator for them. Right. It's going to be, as I said before, it's going to be an additive, because if you look at their their main FICO score or the average FICO score borrower of SoFi, it's around 740. So I don't I don't think it's going to be an issue because you got other firms like a firm in Klarna where they're targeting non prime investors. And for SoFi, that's not the case. Because they only target the top at the top. I'm pretty sure the the average median income of a SoFi borrower is
2: $180,000. Yeah, I think they called them uh what is it, Henry's uh, high earner, not rich yet. Yeah, Henry. <laughs>
1: Funny. Where are we going to go from SoFi? What's what's next?
2: Well, I think we've uh, we've actually reached uh, the end of our allotted time, um, Matt. We're gonna ask you that one question. Uh, what is that one piece of advice that you would give our average listener today, who's in college, you know, worried about a recession, worried about whether SoFi is gonna add BNPL or not, um, <laughs> worried about, you know, where their job is gonna be? How would you, you know, position a current college student? What piece of advice would you give them that would help them succeed in the fintech space in 2024? yeah the, the the one
1: observation and then one piece of advice the, the observation is that companies are always looking for uh, employees or team members whether they're coming out of college or well into their career that are hard working willing to learn and, and and work well with others so i think recession or not the, there's always a labor market for people who want to work and and put in the effort to do it The then the the piece of advice, oftentimes, is you should be flexible, be prepared for for changes, uh, job changes. My my advice is seek them out, Uh, seek out a change. Uh, If you're comfortable, then that means you're you're probably not doing it right. Especially early in your career, seek out some, uh, continually seek out some discomfort uh, in in your careers, and that that just means that uh, that you're still stretching, still learning, and that's what I'd encourage everyone to do
2: thank you so much matt um a few more thank yous obviously thank you to eric for co-hosting with me today thank you to dr Dokolich for his amazing contributions to our student organization helping us get off the ground uh obviously thank you to drew uh, and rahan as well two vice presidents and most of all thank you to you the listener for listening in today have a good day everyone thanks thanks for having me Okay, that's all we had for